Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art, both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 107, with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and myself, Chris Webster. Today, Alan tells us about an indexical shape, the encapsulated cross. All right, welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. This is your sometimes co-host, Chris Webster, talking because I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Garfinkel today. Alan, how's it going? You know, it's going well. It's been an interesting day. Where are you located right now? I am on the Oregon coast, central Oregon coast. Oh, my word. What's the weather like there? The high was 59 today. (laughs) Oh, my words. Cool. Well, I'm here in Bakersfield, California, my home away from home. And uh, we've had some good weather. It's been cooler. It's not been that hot. So Mm -hmm. we've uh, been blessed a little bit. So it's it's good. It's good. So the, the the continuing digital, you know, connection. It always amazes me. No matter where we are, exactly. we, got, we have a robust way of communicating. It's great. <laughs> and and before we really get into the topic today, I just want to let our audio listeners know, our podcast listeners know that there is a video component to this. I'm going to be dropping this on the Archaeology Podcast Network YouTube channel. And if all goes well, Dr. Garfinkel's YouTube channel as well. We'll link to those down in the show notes once it gets up. Also, for our video listeners, anybody who did happen to find this on YouTube, you can find this podcast by just searching the Rock Art Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all the different places. Or you can go over to arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art and you can find it there. So if you're interested in the audio version only, 
then you can do that. Otherwise, we are going to try to include a presentation that Alan has to go along with this in the show notes. And it should be along with the video as well, if, uh, if all goes well. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, and this is the first time we've actually done video with the Rock Art Podcast. It's, uh, yeah. it's through our platform that we record with called Zencaster. And it kind of just does all the work for us, which is pretty great. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. We're just trying something new here. I think with that, Alan, we'll get into talking about a particular rock art image, if you will, that has special meaning. So I've, I've been thinking about this for quite a while and uh, wanting to discuss a particular symbol that is pan North America and also in some ways pan Mesoamerica. And it's called the encapsulated cross. It's called the encircled cross. It's an abiding symbol of Native American cosmology. And it has uh, intricate connections to a lot of history, religion, and the values and themes of the nature of Native American, what would you call it? Native American religion, but also uh, Native American value systems and heritage. So all of the above. Before we get too deep into this, why don't you describe what one of these looks like? Because I'm imagining like crosshairs in a rifle or something. <laughs> That's exactly what it looks like. Okay. If you put a cross on a piece of paper, the intersections of two, a vertical and a horizontal line, and you encircle them with a circle, that's all it is. Okay. It's an encircled cross. Now, you would think that something that simple would not have much gravitas, but it certainly mm -hmm. does. In Mesoamerica, in indigenous cosmology, amongst what we call the Nahuatl, there's a term for this thing. It's called Nahuatlin, which means for movement. Okay. And there's many names for this. It's a quatrefoil. It's a quinsunk. And it means perpetual movement of the universe. Okay. It means integrating and reintroducing the energy and infinite motions of the cosmos. Hmm. And if you look at the um, Aztec codices, they actually have a symbol, which is called a Nahua, Nahui Olin. Okay. And this represents the fifth age, the fifth sun. The um, It's a deep time Yudo-Aztecan sacred narrative. Mm -hmm. It links with one of the most important creation stories that you can have for a culture. Okay. You know, so it's all that and much more. The story goes for the Aztecs that all the gods had gathered to sacrifice themselves and create a new age. The world and the sun had already been created, but it would only be through sacrifice that the sun would be able to be set into motion and time. And we had these, uh, five uh, sacrificial volunteers that were going mm -hmm. to do this. One of them would have to jump into the fire, <laughs> but none of them really wanted to do that. But the, the smallest and humblest of them was the one that decided to jump into the flames and was transformed into the sun and set the sun into motion through his sacrifice. Wow. But as they leaped into the fire and became the sun, the sun didn't have enough momentum or energy 
to to move in the heavens. Hmm. So they had to assemble all four or five of these, um, you know, volunteers or pilgrims to help lift up the sky and move the sun into the heavens so it could perform its regular movements. Wow. Okay. So what we think about constantly for those that are connected to the celestial movements of the sun and the moon and the stars is when the sun finishes up its travels, which is at the uh, winter solstice sunrise, it stops in the heavens. Hmm. Its movement stops. It sits in the same place for several days. And that is what's called the winter solstice. And during the winter solstice was when the several groups inaugurated or commemorated this phenomenon. And they would have what's called the new fire ceremony. (laughs) And the new fire ceremony is when they would charge up and get the movement going again and continue the uh, world and its uh, natural cycles keep the cycles going. Hmm. That was something that was considered to be one of the most sacred of times. And that was December 21st or 22nd. And since it was a pagan holiday, uh, Euro-Americans decided that that would be a good date for Christmas. And so they created a ceremony that would vie with the pagan holiday. And so December 25th is now our Christmas holiday. Right. Wow. There you go. So how does this all lead back to the uh, encapsulated cross then? And and when you say cross too, you said a a horizontal and a vertical line. You know, when you say cross, I imagine like a Christian cross, but do we mean an offset cross like that with two different length lines or more of a plus sign? More of a plus sign. That's what it's called. It looks like a plus sign. And when I went to my Catholic church today and I looked up, they had an exact replica of this symbol hmm. with a circle around it and a plus sign. Wow. So it's still there to to this very day. It takes a, a central place in many uh, churches and many, um, many representations. Mm-hmm. They call it St. Andrew's cross. They call it a Maltese cross. What else do mm-hmm. they call it? A four petal flower. It's a four week butterfly. <laughs> what else? It's uh, the quintessential symbol of what's called the fifth era. Mm-hmm. Now, this um, symbol is sometimes called an olin, O-L-L-I-N. It's the glyph okay. of movement and transformation. Hmm. Now, there's a flower that grows in Mexico. It has four petals and a center, and that's considered to be the equivalent uh, representation of this olin. Now, if we are looking or wondering about Catholicism and Christianity and how that sort of interdigitates with the native world, on the Tilma of Juan Diego, in the representation of the Virgin of Guadalupe, over her womb is a Nahui olin, a quinsunk. It's exactly the same picture. It's this four-petaled flower with the center in it. It's a symbolic way that the Indians understood 
that she's the mother of the sun god. Mm-hmm. The sun god was in her womb, mm-hmm. and he was the sole author and giver of life. This was sometimes, you know, identified as the flower of the sun. Okay. Now all of this is is interesting and and of of relevance. But if you look on the rock art in California, in the Great Basin, all throughout the eastern Mojave Desert, and even into Southern California, you're going to see this symbol again and again and again. Yeah. It is something that is, I guess, part and parcel of the cognitive map of the universe of the native people. Hmm. Even though it's, it's also part of Christian symbol, symbolism, I believe it's more popular and more central to native people. Yeah, well, probably older too, I would imagine. Much older, much, yeah. much older. I think it goes back thousands and thousands of years. And, and I bet if we, if we identified it, it probably uh, is part and parcel of some of the earliest symbols that we might have mm-hmm. going back five, six, seven thousand years or more. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, it's a relatively simple symbol to construct, so that helps, right? And like you said, it it has a lot of meaning depending on what you look at it. You know how right. you look at it and, and who you are. So, so if you think about this this symbol, right? Mm-hmm. It is related to and sim- and similar to, if not one and the same, as what's called the broken cross. Okay, it's this circular symbol, cross in a circle. It looks like a counterclockwise swastika, <laughs> mm. and wow. it's or whirling logs. And you see them. I've seen them several times in the Cosos, and they're all over baskets from the Southern California Indians. And also, mm-hmm. it's uh, it it is depicted in uh, in in the Navajo language as well. So mm-hmm. it's it's sometimes called the cosmic cross, the solar cross, and. Mm-hmm. When you see this, these four parts, that represents, of course, the four basic elements of life. Air, wind, fire, water, earth. Right. Air, air, wind represents life. Fire is warmth and light. Water is sustenance of life. And earth, of course, is that terrestrial plane where the humans abide, and that's provided with the life-giving plants and animals. Hmm. Amazing. Okay. Yeah, so that is for amazing. The, for the Hopi, they have something they call the tequa wheel, and that's definitely the same same element. Mm-hmm. And it means uh, together with all nations, we protect both land and life and hold the world in balance. Okay. That's what the tequa wheel is all about. So wow. with this Nahui Olin, it's a symbol of movement. It represents the congregation of and generation of, of energy but it's also diametrically opposed. It attracts and repels at the same time. It's in constant movement and rotation. It mimics celestial movements of the heavenly bodies. It's the principle of integration, dualism, and intermediation of opposing forces. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All, all that in a nickel by a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, how about, 
How about we take a break right there? You know, before we go to break again, check the links in the show notes for more information on this topic and where you can find the video or where you can find the audio, depending on where you're looking at this. And also in the show notes is uh, Alan's website where you can find a lot more of his resources. And we have a link to his Patreon where you can support some of these efforts and, uh, and help keep all this going. So with that, we will take a break and see you on the other side. Back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 107. And we are talking about... An indexical symbol, Alan calls it, an encapsulated cross. So let's continue diving into this subject, Dr. Garfrangel. Well, Professor Webster, one of the <laughs> amazing things about this, with this indexical cross, this uh, encircled cross, this uh, symbol, is that it's associated with what's called the New Fire Ceremony. The New Fire hmm. Ceremony is a ceremony that is associated with the snake dance of the uh, Hopi. It's also associated with the famous Aztec winter solstice festival where they actually see in shadow the snake crawling up the side of the pyramid as well. Mm. Now, what's also amazing is I, I believe that I see depicted in Coso in Little Pedicliff Canyon a panel that also bears the indication of this new fire ceremony. It's um, what I might call as a meta-narrative. It's a, it's a time of renewal, re-inauguration of the sun. Hmm. And in each of these uh, situations, there's a creation narrative. So I mentioned the creation narrative of the Aztecs. There's also a creation narrative of a sun story for the Weichel. The Weichel are a indigenous people that have kept their culture alive, very conservative people. They're famous for the um, pilgrimage to the to Garner Peyote, okay. which they call their grandmother. And they live in the uh, very southernmost edge of Texas, but ma- mainly North Mexico. So in the time before time, their ancestors abided in the underworld, which was located in the West. Mm-hmm. Time without form, divide of humankind, and shrouded in continuous night. The moon was the singular illumination. The primordial ancestors queried grandmother growth, Nakawe, what they must do so the sun would emerge. Decision was made so that one of the five pilgrims would perform what was called an auto-sacrifice. Four of the five attempted, but failed. But the fifth Hmm. chose to... uh, 
cast himself into the fire, dropped through five levels of the netherworld, battled ferocious beasts who attempted to kill and eat him. But after five days, he reached Dawn Mountain, burst forth through the cave door, and in doing so, was transformed into the Sun Father. Since his powers had been depleted, the sun could not rise high enough in the heavens, and it began to descend. The sun began to burn up and melt everything on earth. Hmm. But the five ancestors reassembled to raise the heavens, and the four were placed in the corners of the cosmos with one in the center, so the sun would now reside in its proper place. Wow. And that's the story of the Weechel. Very similar to that of the of the Aztecs as well. Indeed. As we continue, we have a picture on a pyramidal boulder in Little, little Petroglyph Canyon. And here's our five primordial pilgrims with hmm. their hands up in the air, <laughs> holding something that looks like a parachute. And I think it's a, a cloud. And then in the center of their circle okay. is a another figure holding the snakes. And above, the, and it's above a lunar crescent moon. So these... Uh, it's what I call the sky bearer, bearer and the origin of the sun panel. And this would date to maybe about, mm, say, 2000 BC, about 4,000 years ago. So what we see in this picture, the number five is a very significant number to the Aztecs and to the Nahuatl people, as well as the people, uh, the Huichol and it's meant as a symbol for man meeting God, God meeting man, divinity and transcendence, harmony and beauty, and the one true God. Hmm. So harmonizing these opposites is one of the key metaphors of what's called this quinsunk, this quatrefoil, this nahua olin symbol. And it, it tries to uh, intersect or, or uh, identify with compound metaphors embedding what's called the polysemus, the many meanings all in one. Heaven and earth, day and night, good and evil, morning and evening stars, which is Venus, man becoming God and God becoming man. Sound familiar? Indeed, yeah. So it's rather remarkable that this symbol can be so interconnected with so many various cultures and have so much impact and substance to it. So yeah. And similar meaning too. similar, and similar meaning too, meanings. Yes. Similar yeah. meanings. When you think about Jesus, you're thinking about the reincarnation, man becoming God, God becoming man. When you're thinking about resurrection and transformation, coming of age, the turning of the seasons, it's all interconnected. It's all interrelated. Yeah. And the more one thinks about this, the more sense it all makes. And especially for pre-contact or pre-literate societies, I just talked mm -hmm. about this earlier, these people had a whole different uh, association or understanding, vision, connection with the earth and the environment. And you know right. that, right? Yeah. How did that differ from the way we work today? Well, I mean, not very many people today have any connection with anything outside of their, you know, their house and their job. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah. And when we're dealing with native people or dealing with this pre-contact civilization, 
all they knew was the land, the trees, the birds, the rocks. Yeah. Uh, it was all part and parcel of who they were and what they were and what they did and what they learned. And their mm-hmm. culture, what I've, what I've learned in the small amount of time I've been on this planet, often native people, they don't talk much, okay? They don't, the words, are, mm-hmm. words are, you know, not that important to them. It's, it's words, right? They're very fanciful. Mm-hmm. They're, they're like wisps in the wind. They listen. Right. right. They, and, and the listening, uh, the, the things they hear and the things they sense and feel are sometimes much more important than these fanciful words we, we think are so relevant. Do you agree? Hmm. Indeed, I do. Yeah. I, I've actually, you know, as a founder of the Archaeology Podcast Network and an editor of most of the shows, one of the shows we have called Heritage Voices, actually, our host, Jesse Aquinto, she interviews a lot of Native Americans. And I got to say, you know, with a lot of people that I edit, I will take out like vocal crutches and pauses and things like that. It's more of a common thing for Native speakers, Native Americans speaking on a show like this to have those longer pauses and really pick and choose the words that they're going to use rather than having more vocal crutches, I've noticed. So, yeah, um, I've just noticed that in in podcast editing. Yeah. And when you talk to Native Mm -hmm. people, they look at you and they wait and they want to see what you're going to say (laughs) and how you're going to say it and how do you look and how do you feel and what's your your deal, you know? And then Mm -hmm. when you read their narratives – they emphasize the sounds and the feelings mm. that are associated with a place. And when you go to these places, you hear things and, and see things and sense things. It's a drama. It's a transcendence. It's an overwhelming emotional experience. Indeed. Do you ever get that when you're, when you're there at a rock art site? Yeah, uh, but that I'm an archaeologist. I almost get that. At, I get that at lots of sites, you know, when you're yes. trying to just put yourself yes. in the moment, you know, and, and really kind of feel it. It's a really interesting experience, I guess. Yeah. You know, real real quick, one thing I was thinking about with the, I guess, similar definitions of especially this encapsulated cross, similar meaning across cultures, really across the world in, in some cases, I'm sure we see that with other symbols that are uh, of a more simple nature, right? Not your more complex ones. Those probably have a lot more complexity locally and regionally, but a lot of your more simple symbols that reflect nature and they reflect, you know, some somewhat everyday circumstances. We must see those reflected in rock art across the planet and probably have similar meaning, although we can't really know what that is in most cases. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. We can, in a way, gather or garner when looking at the images. Mm-hmm ask oneself, what are we feeling? What are we sensing? What emotion yeah. does this bring out? Is it awe? Is it fear? Is it joy? Is it sadness? Is it a sense of connection with the supernatural or the divine? Mm-hmm. There's an image in Little Petroglyph Canyon where they have this creature, this, uh, it looks like a woman perhaps, coming yeah. out of a crack in the rock, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's surprising, it's abrupt, it's in some sense beautiful as well. Nice. And if you look very closely and move your head to the left and down, you will see a small figure with his hands holding them up to the sky 
as a supplicant. What's a supplicant, huh. Alan? It's a yeah. it's an individual that is entreating this this divine or this deity, this supernatural, for their aid and their help in overcoming okay. the challenges of life. Okay. Well, you know what? That sounds like a good point to take a break and then come back and wrap up this discussion on the other side. We'll be back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. All right, welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 107. And we are going to wrap up this discussion, not just about the encapsulated cross, but, uh, you know, other symbols and and their meaning and, and nature. So continue, please. Yeah. So as I was mentioning earlier, if you look on baskets, and even if you look on, on the rocks themselves, mm-hmm. this encapsulated cross has this fourfold or fivefold symbolism. And one of the ways it's represented is with this backwards swastika. You know, first time I saw that, it, it, it reared me, and I said, why am I just seeing a swastika <laughs> here right. in, in the aboriginal way? And then I found out that, oh, before they came up with the swastika, the Indians had it, but it was going the other direction. Well, amongst mm-hmm. the Kauia, Southern California Indians, this is known as the Wheel of Life. Okay. And it, it represents the four ages of man, woman. It's in constant motion. It has four arms being birth, youth, mm-hmm. maturity, and death. So that's okay. rather interesting as well. Here it is. That is. On the baskets. Here it is for the Navajo. And here it is in Coso Rockart. It's all over the place. It's it's also a symbol, one of the primary symbols for the group of Indians in the eastern Mojave Desert who are agriculturalists, known as the Mojave or the Kitsan. Hmm. The Mojave Indians were agriculturalists and they also were very lean fighters. They were rather aggressive and warriors. And they also were the famous people who were called the Mojave Runners. What they did was they imported trade items from the American Southwest, and they would carry those on their backs running across the Mojave Desert from the Colorado River to the coast there amongst the Chumash. Wow. It take them about, I think, a week or two weeks to, and they, and they kept running day and night. And they would get there and they had cotton blankets and they had uh, other items along those lines and, and then they would trade. But the, but the major symbol that you see in the petroglyph sites of the Mojave, these are individuals who 
belong to a di- different ethnolinguistic affiliation, the humans, Y-U-M-A-N. Mm-hmm. They had this encapsulated or encircled cross, and it had a very special place in their cosmology because what it represented was the morning and evening stars. Yeah. Also, the, the, the concept of resurrection and mm-hmm. transmogrification and rebirth and all of this because to them, their major deity, which was called Mastambo, and he was found etched on the ground with the uh, geoglyphs on both sides of the Colorado Desert. This is the uh, being that, of course, incorporated or employed the uh, concept of resurrection Mm -hmm. in their creation narratives. Okay. So this this was a central and important symbol for the folks of the Mojave. And it's one thing that's very distinctive and central and prominent in every rock art site you're going to see in the eastern Mojave Desert. That's interesting. And, you know, something I was thinking about, because we, we had a little side chat going here between um, segments. You mentioned Spanish, and I've been using Duolingo for the last, well, I think it was 720 days this morning to do Spanish yes. every day, a little bit, because uh-huh. I never I never took Spanish when I was younger. Right. And now my wife and I are going to go spend a month in Greece in October. And so I've kind of pivoted to Greek <laughs> just to see what that's like. And it makes me wonder, <laughs> it makes me wonder, you know, when you look at these, these symbols together and especially learning the Greek and, you know, Greek is one of the oldest continuously used languages in the world, right? I mean, it's just, it goes back almost 2,800 years. And you look at some of the symbols and and the groups of letters, the groups of letters that make up certain sounds that that make up the words, you know, you put these groups together and they mean something as a whole. Well, something I've never thought about with rock art, really, and I'm sure you have and, and other rock art scholars, is something like this encapsulated cross. Is this often found in association with other stuff? Is it by itself? Is it, it can you commonly say, well, if I find this, then I know this is somewhere nearby? You know what I mean? Let me speak to that in just a, a simple way. There's an image in the Kosos. It's in the Monster Canyon that I was telling mm-hmm. you about. I always like it when there's something that I, I know what it is. So there's a, yeah. a thun, thunderbird mo- motif. It's rather obvious. It's got wings mm-hmm. outstretched, and it's there and looking right at you. And instead of a face, it has an in, it has a uh, encapsulated cross right there, hmm. front and center. Wow. Above the image, besides the thunderbird right, looking right at you, the rain is coming down. It's got rain, rain, rain all all around it. Of course, to those that don't know about the the Thunderbird, that was a, uh, a mythological animal, human spirit, bigger than the biggest bird that existed, and it brought on with its with its wings. It made the heavens rumble and roar with thunder and lightning and brought on the rain. Wow. And so there's a site that I have never seen except in, in pictures that exists in Saline Valley, which is one of the valleys right near Death Valley, one of the driest places on earth. Mm-hmm. And there's a, um, a white to gray to beige 
volcanic escarpment that goes on for many, many meters. And on that escarpment are eight huge examples of these wonderful eagle-like thunderbirds. Wow. And besides that, they've been depicted or placed so that when it rains, the rain spout, the rain drippings, goes right down the center of each hmm. of those images. Wow. And interspersed, interfingered with these images of the rain deity is fertility symbols. Hmm. Re- reproductive uh, elements of females and uh, bighorn sheep copulating. <laughs> of course. And, and, and all the rest. And it's all there. I mean, it's obviously about fertility and life and rebirth and, you know, ex- ex- exposed just there. So you can yeah. uh, obviously grab onto it. Wow. I think that's why I like rock art so much. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's fun and it's interesting and endlessly engaging because the more you think about it, almost the deeper you can get and the more connections and relationships and uh, insights and epiphanies one can can come to. Does that make any mm-hmm. sense? It does. And, and that's probably why, I mean, you start hearing the, the phrase rock art being used less and less, right? And in favor of like rock drawings or yes. something else like that, yes. right? Or just the, the actual archaeological de- definitions of pictograph or, you know, right. um, you know right. something like that. So, and, and part of that is because the word art implies something that may not be the intention. It's, it's almost more of a language. It's more of a, a symbolic language. You know it what is. I mean? It is, it is Which, indeed. Yeah. That's the subject for another uh, podcast. They just, <laughs> they just had a news item that uh, shows that someone believes that they've decoded some of the oldest rock art as to what some of the recurrent symbols mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I'll, yeah, I'll tell you what. We can talk about that because we've got an episode of the Archaeotech podcast coming out tomorrow. Oh, wow. Talking about three three news articles, all related to using AI to basically oh, suss out word. something that humans are just not able to see. You know, one of them was really? new Nazca lines found in Peru uh-huh. using training AI to look at images and AI found... I mean, very obvious patterns where wow. have been missed for 200 years. Um, yeah. Using AI to read cuneiform tablets to translate them straight to English from Sumerian and Akkadian. And then, you know, using AI to do a number of things. So it wouldn't surprise me, wow. you know, that we could use AI to, to find other shapes that we maybe didn't think were significant. But I'm not sure about the actual interpretation because we don't even know what they mean. You have to train the AI with something, right? So right. you have to teach it. what You have to say, this symbol means this and this symbol means this. Find more of those and tell me what it all means. But in, if you don't know those starting points, it's hard to make it continue. And, and in some ways, we do know what certain symbols mean, as though I've, you know, professed sure. today. Yeah. And so if we go from the known to the unknown, which is sometimes called the ethno-historic method or the ethnographic analogy, right? I think we, we could be surprised at what we might learn or what better questions we might be asking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the rocks can begin to speak. Talking stones, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, all right. Well, any final words on this uh, topic before we end the show today? 
I just, I just think going to rock art sites and studying this subject is one that is endlessly engaging, uh, mm-hmm. very mysterious, and a heck of a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> indeed well said all right well with that uh again look down at your show notes or if you're on youtube take a look at the notes for this video and check out alan's website and patreon and he's got books he's got he mentioned talking stone which is also a video that you can get so check that out and um, with that we will see you guys next time with another great episode of the rock art podcast thanks a lot see you next week on the flip-flop gang Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.